Welcome to Chromosphere, the color theory podcast. My name is Ed Charbonneau. I am an artist whose main focus is on painting, and I am also an adjunct faculty member in the Fine Arts Department at the Minneapolis College of Art and Design. This podcast presents a series of conversations about color, color usage, and optics as they relate to theories of human color perception in the making of visual art and design. We eat first with our eyes. What does that have to do with color theory? Well, it's a subject that I would like to explore today because I think it may have some ramifications about uh, some environmental impact. But I learned recently that black plastic containers are not recyclable recyclable or they're not recyclable or they're not being recycled there was a story on uh, minnesota public radio recently where they were interviewing uh, recycling people that uh, handle the recycling in the twin cities area and it came up that uh, black plastic, due to the sorting machines and the laser that they use to identify different types of materials, that the, um, the black surface of um, certain containers uh, doesn't reflect light, which makes sense from a color theory perspective. Black objects tend to absorb more light and reflect little so the laser is not able to identify these because it doesn't get a bounce back and so therefore it doesn't get sorted kind of makes me think like well if, if you're sorting everything and then you've got a group of materials that the laser doesn't um, bounce back off of then wouldn't virtually at the end of the line wouldn't a pile be created of black objects uh, must be more complicated than that which also opens up the question that I haven't been able to figure out by searching online like whether or not black plastic objects are even recyclable at all and so as I was driving down the road listening to the story I kind of thought to myself black plastic I don't have a memory of seeing a lot of this stuff and then it started to occur to me that a lot of food packaging it uses black plastic and, um, and various things like potted plants at a nursery will come in a black tub. And then going to the grocery store, uh, walking in and, and really starting to see all of a sudden like, whoa, it's, it's everywhere. It, I, you know, it's kind of like, I guess it's one of those things um, which I'd actually like to devote another, uh, an individual podcast to is this idea of uh, what I call the subjective competition theory of attention. It's also known as the biased competition theory of attention, but I prefer the word subjective, alluding to how we're all different and how things are more noticeable to us at times than other times. And uh, it's otherwise known as just selective attention. So it kind of comes from the idea like, I don't know if you've ever bought like a, a red car 
and then all of a sudden you're driving around and you can't believe how many red cars there are on the road. So it's commonly known as selective attention. And um, I think it has ramifications for art making, uh, design, uh, thinking about design, composition, and placement in terms of uh, secondary focal points and tertiary focal points, things within a composition that may not be noticed at first. But that's a topic for another so back to the black plastic and being in the grocery store, now that I'm standing there, I'm seeing this stuff all over the place. I walk over to the sushi counter, which uh, the grocery store that we go to has a rather nice, always a really nice selection of sushi, and we um, you know, have it for lunch uh, more often than not. And I'm looking, and all of the, all of the sushi is served on these black, shiny uh, trays with these little... Uh, clear plastic domed uh, things and they've got the compartments for the sushi and then you got the wasabi and you got the um, ginger or whatever and you know I'm thinking now I'm thinking like ginger like well one of my uncles has a saying that uh, uh, sushi is nothing more than a, um, a wasabi delivery device so, which I kind of go in on that thought, like it's kind of about getting as much wasabi on there that I can physically handle and having my mind blown while I'm uh, enjoying a delicious lunch. Um, yeah, well, okay, so I'm getting a little off topic here. But uh, back to the black plastic, so the question is, why is it black? That, so thinking about it as a color theory kind of approach, I thought back to my time uh, working in kitchens as um, as a younger. This was a while ago, like in the late '80s, mid to late '80s. I I started working in in kitchens first, like doing dishes, and then working as like a short order line cook, and um, did that all the way through. I, I think I worked in kitchens for about eleven or twelve years when I was younger. And right off the bat, I once I started plating up food and cooking, I started to arrange things on the plate. And I wasn't, I wasn't so identified as an artist back then, so I wasn't like naming it as such. But I was like making little sculptures out of the food, and the hamburger or the salad or whatever it was I was making. It was important to me to have it be aesthetically pleasing and, and look delicious. And right away, I remember doing well as a cook because of the compliments that I would get from like the wait staff and my bosses and stuff like that being like, wow, this looks really good. You know, like it, it has to do with the arrangement of the food. Thinking of, you know, some French fries and a cheeseburger as like a little sculpture that you can make in like a matter of seconds and doing that like hundreds of times. And so now I'm really getting off topic. But there's this saying that I became aware of back then, that this idea that we eat with our eyes. And uh, the actual uh, saying is attributed to a Roman in the first century by the name of Apicus. Not sure if I'm saying that correctly. But Apicus said, we eat first with our eyes. So we eat first with our eyes. So when that food is put down in front of us, 
there's decision making being ha- there's things happening in our minds that are preparing us uh, to eat and setting up this experience, right? And so, you know, even going further into my research into color theory and like the evolution of human color vision, it's theorized that in trichromatic, um, in human uh, color vision, a trichromatic, uh, the three types of cone cells, tri, three, chromatic color, um, that, that it evolved in humans uh, so that we could gain the ability to see red or to perceive red in the environment so that we could find fruits and vegetables of higher nutritional value that were ripe. And also this notion that uh, food and eating presents a reward system of survival ingrained in us that eating leads to survival. Obvious, right? But that concept is linked to vision in that we more or less decide if the food looks to be appetizing. And so if it's deemed to be appetizing, it sets off uh, a set of, uh, of good sensations or it helps us to anticipate the good sensation of eating. And also like uh, colors and color combinations are not only aesthetically pleasing, but they are associated with survival by our minds, by our brains, as seeing food as an indication that we may eat soon and therefore continue living. There's scientific research in there, out there that is like, you know, basically I didn't just make that up. So, it, so it's like when we're standing in a grocery store looking at what's in front of us, there's a lot more going on than like I feel like, you know, chicken or... I feel like tuna tonight, which, um, which I don't know. How did, how did the advertising people let that one slip through their fingers? I feel like chicken tonight, or I feel like tuna tonight. You got the alliteration with the tuna. I don't know. Okay. We'll, we'll come back to that later. Um, but that feels like a big loss for the tuna companies. So anyway, back to the black plastic. So what I'm trying to describe here is that there's a, and it might seem fairly obvious, but there's a visual component to eating with most people. Of course, not everyone is the same. I can't say that enough in this series of podcasts that um, we are individuals and that there's a massive range of how visual perception operates. So that said, there is a question mark why black plastic why not clear plastic why not white plastic why not red plastic containers this black plastic is everywhere i guess one of the first things it makes me think of is what is called the simultaneous contrast or uh, more specifically chevreul's first law of simultaneous contrast uh, described by Michel Eugene Chevreul in 1839. And simultaneous contrast is essentially an idea, or hmm, it's a theory, I guess, but it's a phenomenon that is theorized to be taking place in a way that looks at human color perception being broken down into having uh, three types of, of photo 
receptor cone cells in our eyes. And, and our eyes, common, common eyes, retinas, um, will have about 6 million cone cells. And we see color through cone cell vibrations. And what, vi what makes them vibrate is electromagnetic energy that is carrying photons, which is what we call white light. And within that white light, there is what's called the spectral band. So white, the light travels as a wave energy, and the wavelengths peak at different points. The measurements between the peaks of the light in the band expand as they go from blue through green through red. So the peaks are closer together at the um, blue end. They're further apart at the red end. And so we have what are um, short short cones, S cones, they call them, short, short wavelength sensitive. So the blues are in that, violets and blues. Green um, is like a medium wavelength uh, where the, the, the wavelength peaks are a little bit further apart. So that's, that's those types of colors, the green range. And then red is the longer wavelengths. And then there's what are called L cones. So there's like these three main cones. And they vibrate in different ratios to basically tell our minds what it is that we're seeing, what's, what's being perceived. And I won't go into that any more than that because that'll be a different podcast too because there's a lot more of that. But just imagine these um, millions of cones. And uh, it should also be noted that there are many, many, many more green and red sensitive cones than there are blue sensitive cones. I think maybe only about 10% of them are blue. The rest are green and, and it might even be fewer than 10%. It's between maybe five and 10% if I, well, I'll have to figure I'll get back to you on that one. But just imagine there's not a lot of blue cones. Um, so when light from an object so, so we're standing there looking at something, right? And all the objects that are reflecting light into our eyes are reflecting a portion of the entire spectrum, but mainly a certain segment of the spectrum. So, um, so let's say you're looking at a red tomato. That tomato is reflecting, let's say, 90% of... Uh, red wavelengths, but it, that leftover 10% is composed of all other wavelengths of light. So in the reddest tomato, you can see there are green wavelengths that are within those signals that are coming to your eyes. And it's just that they're not very noticeable. So you see the tomato is red. And so the law of simultaneous contrast works on this idea that all these cone cells in our eyes on our retinas they vibrate they they're shaped like little cones that's why they're called cones and photons go in there and they bounce around and they stimulate the cones and in in that process the cones get tired they get a little pooped out they you know especially if there's a lot going on they get tired they get sleepy they want to take a little nap. And while that's happening, 
the perception of the wavelengths that they're responsible for um, decreases in our minds. And so if you're looking at a red tomato on a green field, the tiring of the green, cone, green sensitive cones in your eyes will lessen the perception of the green that is being reflected by the red object itself, thereby making that red appear to be more vibrant than, well, I was going to say than it actually is. But that is, it isn't actually any color. <laughs> oh, that's another rabbit hole. Um, well, okay, I'm not going to go to that. That's another story about how things are actually colorful. Okay, I'm getting way off topic. All right, let's go back to the black plastic. We got black plastic. We got Chevrolet's first law of simultaneous contrast. We've got the idea that colors are seen in context of what's around them. Therefore, that the plastic tray is black and neutral, effectively, absorbing color, hence can't be noticed or detected by the lasers in the recycling plant, reflecting few colors, the food object will remain much more strong in vision because it won't have the competition of the colors that are framing it. And black in particular in the absorption of color, the fact that they're shiny as well plays into this. Most of these food containers are kind of shiny to very, very high gloss, very shiny. And that makes me think of, have you ever noticed a wet rock syndrome where you have a rock, and you pick it up and you're like, all right, this is a rock and it looks like whatever. And then you dip it into water and you pull it back out and you're like, whoa, this thing is super colorful and amazing. And wow, this is one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen in my life. What's going on there is that surfaces uh, on a microscopic scale, sometimes you can feel it like the wood, grain of wood or whatever, but on a microscopic scale, surfaces are like really bumpy. And there's a lot of hills and valleys, even though you may not be able to feel them so much or see them, they're there. And so a rock, you know, actually you can usually feel the texture of a rock like pretty good. But what happens when you dip that rock or something into water, that it gets dark, like let's say you spill something on your shirt and you're wearing this nice little blue shirt, periwinkle blue shirt, and you uh, drip some water on it and it gets dark. What's happening is that uh, the, the liquid is filling in all those valleys. And light, uh, electromagnetic energy photons, propelled photons, are going down into that, um, that surface in those valleys. And where before it was dry and they would just bounce and reflect back off, now it's wet and so they, get, they bounce back and forth within the valleys in all directions and a lot of them get trapped in this endless bouncing back and forth within this microscopic realm so they don't escape 
uh, the rock or the surface and, and then thus never make it to our eye, to our retinas where we can perceive them. So therefore, less light coming from the surface means darker, it'll be darker. And then also when the way stones like all of a sudden become very vibrant is most colors operate more chromatically in the mid to darker value ranges. And what happens in a surface um, reflection of like a dry stone is that because it's so textured, the light isn't bouncing off at a uniform rate and back into our eyes. It's being reflected in a way that is similar, if not the same, as what's called scattering. So it's taking the white light waves and it's bouncing them back, but they're going in millions of different directions, like all directions, and they, that's called scattering. And when light scatters like that, it recombines back into white light because all the wavelengths are getting mixed, and when you mix all the wavelengths together, you get white. So the rock will appear to be lighter. Why am I talking about this in terms of black plastic? Well, most of this black plastic is shiny. And so it's really trapping the light, making it so that the food is the shape. The shape that's coming at us is the shape of the food. And it's all about that aesthetic anticipation that we will soon be eating. And therefore, we will be able to live, like actually make it to the next day or the next hour. And so this is a powerful thing. And it's different than if... The packaging was a white, a white package. You know, maybe, maybe as an experiment for the next time you go into the grocery store, pick up a T-bone steak that's wrapped in cellophane on a white styrofoam um, background. By virtue of what I'm saying, if you stare at that steak long enough, that white background, you should be able to start to perceive some green and blue uh, emanating out of that white if you look at it long enough. Um, as you tire your red cone cells looking at that stake, white, remember, is the reflection of all wavelengths. So it appears white because it's reflecting blue, green, and red wavelengths. Therefore, as your red cone cells uh, tire, the, the, the green and blue that's perceptible in that styrofoam or that's present in the reflection from that styrofoam should become more perceptible. So I guess that's a question mark. There are lots of questions about this, but that black plastic, I think, is problematic, and it kind of makes sense why it's being used, but the fact that it can't be recycled or that we're stuck with it for the rest of eternity once it's made um, just feels kind of messed up. I don't know, maybe as artists and designers, is there a way to approach the situation from an aesthetic point of view and thinking about optics and how people respond to color and how that makes food more or less appetizing on multiple levels and to come up with a better solution? Because once I noticed... You know, the black plastic standing at the sushi counter, I turn around and I see that it's all throughout the entire store. I see it everywhere. 
you know, it's right back to that buying a red car, a red truck or something. And all of a sudden there's red trucks everywhere. Uh, kind of, well, reminds me of uh, a story I heard long ago that uh, parking attendants got together down at Disney World in Florida and decided early in the morning that they were going to direct all the red cars into one parking lot for the day. And they basically filled the parking lot up with these red cars. And at the end of the day, it caused like craziness because nobody could find their car. And um, I heard that they all got fired. And I don't even know if that's a real story. We'll have to <laughs> have to get that'll be a future podcast, maybe to find out if that's just an urban myth or if that actually happened. So yes, we got back, we got into a little bit of Chevrolet's first law of simultaneous contrast. As he described in his book of 1857, the book entitled The Laws of Contrast of Color, colon, and their application to the arts of painting, decoration of buildings, mosaic work, tapestry and carpet weaving, calico printing, dress, paper staining, printing, military clothing, illumination, landscape, and flower gardening. Yes, flower gardening. It's all about saving the bees. Gotta save the bees. Well, that will do it for our episode today. I will uh, continue my research into this uh, situation with black plastic and try to learn more about either why it can't be recycled or why it isn't, and also dig a little deeper into this idea of aesthetics and food and survival. As it relates to design and art making. So thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please share it with your friends and family who may be interested, and follow Chromosphere, the Color Theory Podcast, on Facebook and Instagram. We'd love to hear from you if you have comments or suggestions. I'd like to thank Jeremy Shapinsky for writing and performing the theme music. Thank you also to Grant Winkles, Susie Manili, and Jeremy Shapinsky again for their production, consulting, and editing.